Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. On this edition of 60 Minutes Presents... Tales of Our Four-Legged Friends. Tonight, we pay homage to our dogs, take a trip through human and canine evolution. How are wolves and man's best friend alike? And that was so cool. You'll be surprised at what we found out. Can I see your face? As well as the remarkable ways that dogs are helping scientists research some of the deadliest kinds of cancer. It's so amazing to me how similar humans' and dogs' immune response is. We're very similar. Um, you know, I think perhaps more so than we might like to admit. It's hard to imagine anything surviving on this expanse of badlands in northern Wyoming. Sagebrush blankets the high desert all the way to the Rocky Mountains. But in this empty quarter of the cowboy state is a thundering herd of mustangs. Untouched, wild, and breathtakingly beautiful. What's happening to these thousands of wild horses? That's our story tonight. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. 
Plus, you'll know what to tackle next, because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Good evening, I'm Anderson Cooper. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, three tales of our four-legged friends. Later, we'll hear about horses, but we begin with dogs. There's a good chance that many of you watching right now have a dog somewhere nearby. But what do you actually know about where dogs come from? You're probably aware they evolved from wolves, but how and when? It turns out much of that is still a mystery. There are some intriguing clues, however, that have been discovered in the DNA of dogs and wolves, clues that just might give us a better understanding of how they and we evolved. You've heard of survival of the fittest, but as we first reported in November, a scientist at Duke University says the term that may best describe dogs' evolutionary success is survival of the friendliest. There's no doubt dogs are an evolutionary triumph. There's an estimated billion of them on the planet, and they've nosed their way into every corner of our lives, living with us, working with us, yes, good boy. and loving us. What is it you're trying to understand about dogs? I'm really interested in where dogs come from, uh, and I think it teaches us a lot about where humans came from. Brian Hare, an evolutionary biologist and author at Duke University, has spent the last 25 years studying animal evolution. Puppy, look. I think what really summarizes the link between dog and human evolution is survival of the friendliest. What about survival of the fittest? So survival of the fittest is a misconstrual, really, in the public mind of what evolution is. It's like the idea that like the biggest, the strongest are always the one that win. Might makes right. Yeah, but not at all. And dogs are exhibit A of this. Hare says it may be hard to imagine, but that sweet dog you love started out as this. A wild, predatory wolf. And their evolutionary story began at least 20,000 years ago when humans were hunter-gatherers. So what we believe happened, and we have science to show some of this, is that wolves chose us. A population of wolves actually became attracted to humans. And they were at an advantage because they were eating garbage, things that people were leaving around home. And that the wolves that sort of basically gave up on being wolfy and hunting and were attracted and friendliest towards humans. They were at a huge advantage. Some wolves were able to feed off scraps. They weren't aggressive. And over time, they became domesticated. That's exactly right. Come on in. To better understand how the two species diverged so drastically, Brian Hare came here to the Wildlife Science Center in Minnesota. All right, uh, you want to guard and I'll drag? Yep. It's run by director Peggy Callahan and her 23-year-old daughter Meg. Both skilled, we saw it navigating a cage full of hungry wolves. Back up, MJ. Back up. Back up. Back up. Back up. Nope. Nope. I know you're hungry. No, don't nope. get pissed at me. This nope. is only going as far as it's going. It's, yeah. You might want to just hand it over. There are 110 gray wolves here. Hi. Some were rescued from the wild, but most were hand-raised by Peggy and Meg. They're divided into packs, separated by chain-link fences. This pack is named after the 80s horror movie, Children of the Corn. <laughs> so I saw the movie Children of the Corn, which is terrifying. Why is this pack called Children of the Corn? <laughs> For terrifying reasons. Um, they uh, attacked and killed their father and then tried to kill their mother. So this pack? This pack. Why did they kill their father? Opportunity. Opportunity? Yeah. <laughs> <Wow. Yep. laughs> 
Peggy told us the only reason we were able to sit among the children of the corn is because these wolves view her as the dominant member of their pack. Why is it important that in their mind you were dominant to them? The reverse is quite dangerous. I know that they're capable of killing one another. Their teeth are, their jaw pressure is enormous. By the way, even right now with the wolves coming up behind you, you're aware they're behind you. We have to have eyes on the back of your head. They're assessing who are we, who's dominant. Could I take this person? Absolutely, Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I, I don't, hi, I don't think they're planning anything, but I think should an opportunity afford, they're incredible opportunists. Peggy works hard to secure the upper hand. If you have any doubt about her position as the alpha dog, just listen. Can you, can you show me your hell? Absolutely. Goosebumps every time. <laughs> That was so cool. So wouldn't you learn to howl if that happened? (laughs) What is the significance of the howl? They use it to mark territory. Um, They also will howl at intruders to to get them to leave. Becoming dominant over a wolf starts early. If a puff needs to be taken away from its mother for health or research purposes, Meg steps in. Told you I'd bring a wolf puppy to visit. When we were there with her last year, she was taking one-month-old Philo everywhere even the morning coffee run. Sometimes if he gets really mouthy, ouch, like that. Enough. Good boy. So it's just a little correction. I just pinch and I growl. And then the second he stops growling, I'm like, oh yeah, I whine to him and and, and rub his belly and stuff. That's what his mother would do? Exactly, yep. I'm sorry. There's some wolf that looked just like you that was back talking me there, not you. But don't be fooled, dominance has its limits. This is MJ. This is the dominant female. Yes. She was also hand-raised and likes a belly rub, too. That is, so until she doesn't. She's tolerating this with uh-huh. us. She's, right. I mean, she's... Oh, oh. Okay. No, she's not. <laughs> okay, enough. Okay. She just said stop. I heard. <laughs> to see just how far dogs have evolved because of domestication, at Duke University, Brian Hare has set up a puppy kindergarten. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Students help raise Labrador puppies. They tag along, cruising the quad, going to basketball practice, even the track team's photo shoot. Part of the program is aimed at training service dogs for the organization Canine Companions. But there's research being done, too. To compare the puppies to hand-raised wolf pups, Brian Hare's team runs them through a series of behavioral tests. Look, look, okay. Yes, good job. Watch again. Puppy, look. Notice how this puppy looks back and forth from the researcher to the bowl and then immediately follows her point. Puppy, look. Philo, the wolf puppy, might look like a dog, but watch him taking the same test. Puppy, look. So you can see Philo didn't follow the point here. But a a puppy at this age would. Totally, exactly. So it looks like dog puppies come into the world kind of prepared to understand us in a way that wolf puppies are not because of domestication and interacting with us. 
You've done testing with dozens of wolves. Overall, what have you found? So you can spend 24 hours a day with, say, a wolf puppy. Uh, and even after you've done that for several months, they're not attracted to new people. They don't want to be with people. They want to be with wolves. That's not what happens in the case of dogs. As a species, they're actually what's known as xenophilic. They're attracted to new things and new people. But how much of that is in their genes? Back in 2010, to figure that out, Hare's colleague, Bridget von Holt, a geneticist at Princeton, started comparing the DNA of dogs to wolves. You've located some specific genes that lead to friendly behavior. That's right. When we sequenced a bunch of dogs and a bunch of wolves, we used that to then search for mutations in the dog genome that only dogs had. And we came out with a really nice hot spot of mutations on chromosome number six in the dog genome. And that's what's highlighted here. You can actually pinpoint genetic mutations in dogs that make that dog friendly to humans in a way that wolves are not. Absolutely. Wow. This was a major finding, in my opinion. And that is something that would have evolved over time. That's right. So we can imagine back in the pre-dog era where there were wolves running around, and some of those wolves were maybe making their dens closer to human settlements. I hypothesize that if I could go and sequence those wolves, that they would carry maybe two of these mutations, mm -hmm. and the rest of the wolves, maybe none. Bridget von Holt calls these friendliness mutations. So does my dog really love me, or is my dog just <laughs> acting out on its genetic code? She absolutely loves you. <laughs> she has the genetic predisposition to wholeheartedly love you more than she probably right, can handle. What came next in Von Holt's research stunned her and us. She found the location of the friendliness mutations in dogs corresponds to the same genes that when deleted in humans cause a rare condition called Williams syndrome. Her study established one of the first genetic links in behavior between dogs and humans. Meet 36-year-old Ben Monkeba. How are you, sir? I'm well. How are you, sir? What a surprise. Ben is no stranger to 60 Minutes. When he was 11 in 1997, Morley Safer met him doing a story on Williams Syndrome. I'm Morley. Morley Safer? Yes, himself. How are you? People with Williams Syndrome, like Ben, are often unusually outgoing and friendly, leading some to call it cocktail party personality. We were with Ben at his favorite pub when he jumped up mid-dinner to join the band. Well, look at this night. And it don't seem so lonely. But we'll fed it up with only two. Yeah, only two. What is it that makes you unique? What makes me unique is uh, my way of giving happiness to people, my friendliness, my kindness. I gotta say, just meeting you, you made me smile the moment we met. When people are happy, it makes me feel like I've achieved something. Williams syndrome is a lifelong condition that often causes serious medical problems and intellectual disabilities. Ben's mom, Terry Monkeba, says Ben and others like him are so trusting and friendly they can sometimes be taken advantage of. Just explain what is different about Ben genetically. Sure, it's Ben is missing 25 genes on chromosome 7. And all of those genes line up, so that's, you know, one-tenth of one percent of their genetic makeup that is missing. 
That deletion in Ben's DNA and others with Williams syndrome involves the same genes that contain the friendliness mutations discovered in dogs. Ben, what do you think about that, about that there might be a link friendliness wow. in, in dogs, there might be a link to friendliness in, in wow. humans. It just makes me feel so happy and proud that dogs and people have similarities. When the discovery was announced in 2017, Terry was head of the Williams Syndrome Association. She reached out to some members to see how they felt about it. And one of the parents that I called said, are you kidding? Uh, you know, I'm sure that if a tail was put on my son, it would be wagging all the time, <laughs> you know? And I, so, uh, and I think that really put it into perspective. Understanding why dogs are so friendly, Brian Hare tells us, is helping unravel the mystery of how Homo sapiens came to be the most dominant species on Earth. So what does our understanding of dog evolution tell us about human evolution? I think what uh, dog evolution teaches us is that actually how you get ahead in the game of life is you evolve a new way to be friendly that leads to a new form of cooperation. Humans 100,000 years ago, our species, was not alone. There were at least four to five other human species. And the question then becomes, well, why are we the only one left? And we think, and uh, what dogs point to, is that we were the friendliest species that ever evolved among humans, and that we survived because we are friendly. Survival of the friendliest, a successful evolutionary strategy many humans today would be wise to remember. When we come back, see how the genetic ties between dogs and humans may help us both in the fight against cancer. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. If you've ever lost a dog to disease, it may well have been cancer. Some 4 million dogs in the U.S. are diagnosed with it every year, often the same kinds of cancers as humans get. We share many of the same genes with our canine companions, and as we discovered last fall, for cancer research, that's an opportunity scientists are trying to make the most of. It's called Comparative Oncology. Now funded in part by the White House's Cancer Moonshot Initiative, doctors and scientists are studying naturally developing cancers, mostly in dogs, and using what they learn to speed potential treatments to them and us. 
A dog show might seem like an odd place to conduct cancer research. Can I see your face? But last summer in Norwalk, Connecticut, that's where we met scientists from the National Institutes of Health, swabbing and collecting DNA samples from all sorts of breeds. Oh, awesome. They've been doing this for nearly 30 years and have collected about 40,000 samples so far. Every few weeks we're at a dog show. Leading the team is Elaine Ostrander, a senior geneticist at the NIH. I always thought the National Institutes of Health study human diseases. Why is there a scientist at the NIH studying dogs? We are studying human disease and we're doing it through dogs. And so dogs live in our world. They get all the same diseases we do. They eat our food. They're exposed to the same environmental pollutants. But they also have all the same genes that we do. And they have mutations in those genes that make them susceptible to everything you and I get, whether it's diabetes or, or cancer or neuromuscular diseases. Everything humans get, dogs get. Ostrander says it's easier to study genes in dogs than humans because for the last 200 years, they've been bred to emphasize specific traits. That's why they have all these distinct noses and tails and sizes, from Great Danes to Chihuahuas. So before Victorian times, dogs were pretty much the same? So there was some variation. We know that from fossil and archaeologic records. But almost all the variation you see running around in the rings today, that's all happened in the last 200 years. It's really incredible that there's so much variety right. in that short of time. Right, so that means it's probably going to be a really small number of genes responsible for most of the major differences. It turns out just one gene determines if a dog has cream-colored hair or black. Other genes determine long hair or short. And Ostrander's team at the NIH has discovered some physical traits in dogs, like ear position, hold surprising clues about human health. This was a study looking at prick ears versus floppy ears. Uh -huh. And that's due to a mutation in, in one gene called MSRB3. So just a mutation in one gene. One gene, isn't that amazing? Makes the difference between pointy ears yep. and floppy isn't ears. Isn't that amazing? But what's really interesting about this story is that when this gene is, is perturbed or more dramatically mutated in humans, we get a form of deafness. Really? Yeah. Ostrander told us some of the most promising genetic research in dogs involves cancer. Some breeds get certain types of cancers more often, making it easier for researchers to locate some of the genes responsible. Scottish Terriers, for instance, are about 20 times more likely to get bladder cancer than the average mixed-breed dog. Now, if I were to look at a group of humans with bladder cancer, the story would be so much more complex. There would be different genes in different populations, there'd be different mutations different contributions of environmental effects. So when I look in one breed, I get much simpler stories. Dogs are diagnosed with many of the same cancers found in humans. Lymphoma, melanoma, brain and breast cancer, and the deadly bone cancer, osteosarcoma. And then what about the chemotherapy? How did he do with that? University of Pennsylvania professor and veterinarian Nicola Mason oversees a national network of comparative oncology trials funded by the White House's Cancer Moonshot Initiative. She showed us just how similar osteosarcoma looks in dogs and people. So what you can see, there's lots of purple dots here. These are the, the nuclei of the cancerous cells. They look identical. Yeah, e even a professional looking under a microscope would not be able to tell the difference between a dog with osteosarcoma and a human. Correct, incredibly similar. Osteosarcoma is aggressive and malignant, more than 10,000 dogs in the United States are estimated to get it each year, but only about 1,000 people are, mostly children and young adults. Christy Gomes was diagnosed in 2020 when she was 11. Which was the leg that was hurting? Left. Yeah, left. 
So it was hurting up in your thigh? It went up in like, yeah, here. Christy was used to getting bruised on the soccer field, so she and her mom, Kathy Fetter, chalked it up to a sports injury. But after months of physical therapy, her doctor discovered osteosarcoma, that white mass, had eroded most of Christy's thigh bone. She comes in and she goes, uh, Christy has a cancerous tumor in her femur. And I was like, what? And I was, I'm not like a crier, so I like, I think I was processing it, and as I was processing it, I saw her cry, so then I started crying. And then she was like, wait, I have cancer? Doctors removed the remaining bone and replaced it with this nine-inch metal rod. Good job. Months of grueling chemotherapy withered Christy to 72 pounds. But her pediatric oncologist, Dr. Alyssa Rubin, told us the cancer came back, this time in Christy's lungs. Patients, once their tumor comes back, are at really high risk. Probably 80% of the time will get new tumors. Have there been a lot of new treatments for osteosarcoma? Unfortunately, no. We've been using the same chemotherapy for about the last 60 years or so. Really? Is that because it's a rare form of cancer? Yeah, it's harder to study because there's smaller numbers of patients to you know, study in large um, trials. And also, since it's rare, not a lot of funding goes to a lot of trials for it. But there were trials in pet dogs of an experimental immunotherapy treatment for osteosarcoma that began in 2012, led by Dr. Nicola Mason, using the bacteria Listeria. This is Listeria, causes food poisoning. This particular Listeria has been genetically modified so that it is far less virulent. The Listeria has also been modified to contain a specific protein called HER2 that's found on some osteosarcoma cells. Once injected into the dog's bloodstream, the listeria awakens their immune systems, making them feel sick. It also triggers killer immune cells to patrol the body and destroy the cancerous cells. Sandy, a nine-year-old golden retriever, joined a nationwide trial in 2018. She's had her front leg amputated because of osteosarcoma. We met her this past August with her owner, Matt Olson. During the trial, Dr. Mason told us Sandy's immune system reacted to the listeria just as she'd hoped. Her body temperature started to increase, peaked around about four hours, and then started to drop down again. We sort of want to see that because it tells us that the immunotherapy is in fact stimulating her immune response, which is what we want to happen. When Sandy was first diagnosed, her life expectancy with the standard care of amputation and chemotherapy was around a year. But that was four years ago. There's no sign of cancer. No. And you've had four great years with her. Yeah. Did she get like extra treats when she <laughs> got through it all? She got everything. <laughs> she, she still does, she man. Does. I bet she does. Dr. Mason believes studying and treating naturally occurring cancers in pet dogs is more promising compared to using lab mice, which have to be artificially given cancer. What we're trying to do is find a better way to determine which are the best treatments to take forward into the human. This is not giving dogs rare forms of cancer and then studying them and testing them in a lab. Exactly. So these are naturally occurring cancers. These are clinical trials, just as you or I would go on to a clinical trial if we had a, a, a cancer. And we do exactly the same in the veterinary field. Results from the first Listeria trial in pet dogs were encouraging, showing the dogs tolerated the immunotherapy and that it significantly increased duration of survival time. Those results were submitted to the Food and Drug Administration.
Let's just confirm your birthday. In 2021, the FDA approved a phase two clinical trial using modified listeria to treat young adults and children like Christy Gomes, who've recurrent osteosarcoma that spread to their lungs. All right, do you want cartoons on the TV? Yes, please. We were with Christy in August at Children's Hospital of Orange County when she received her third listeria infusion. That star in the dark circle, that's the needle going into your vein. Kind of cool, huh? Uh-huh. First, she was given medications that made her sleepy. When the infusion's actually happening, do you remember it afterward, or do you basically sleep through it? <laughs> just sleep. Mm-hmm. And then when I wake up, it hits like a truck. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. You get a headache. Mm-hmm. Bad headache. And nauseous. And I hate not nauseous and headache. Two things I don't like is two things guaranteed. Once she was dozing, the listeria started dripping into Christie's IV. So it started now. It has. It's kind of amazing to think that you're both on the, the cutting edge of, of medicine. I know. And I, I don't think she... I don't think she realizes how important this is. <laughs> An hour later, that truck Christy told us about, it hit her hard. But similar to what happened to Sandy, the golden retriever, the listeria appeared to awaken Christy's immune system. And after 10 minutes, her headache got better. A few hours later, she was able to leave the hospital. It's so amazing to me how similar humans and dogs' immune response is. We're very similar. Um, you know, I think perhaps more so than we might like to admit. The National Cancer Institute is spending more than $20 million to analyze cancer samples from pet dogs all over the country and oversee comparative oncology trials to improve treatments in humans and dogs. One of their targets is brain cancer. This is Otto, a seven-year-old boxer who belongs to Dan Heffron. Otto was diagnosed with a deadly brain tumor in 2021. Take the pointer finger on your left hand and touch your nose. And this is Julie Hinseth, who's 59. She was diagnosed in 2020 with a similar, nearly incurable brain cancer, glioblastoma. She's had surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, but the cancer came back. Julie and Otto enrolled in clinical trials at the University of Minnesota that use virtually the same experimental treatment. A neurosurgeon and veterinary surgeon teamed up to treat and operate on Otto and other dogs with brain cancer and then shared their data about safety and dosing with a neuro-oncologist treating Julie and others. Hi. Hi, Otto. Julie, along with her husband Doug and daughter Kelly, met Otto for the first time last year. Two patients, similar cancers, different species. What's it like to meet Otto? Oh. <laughs> I'm crying, you know. <laughs> Inflammation in Julie's brain makes it difficult for her to speak. I, I never thought I would be having a conversation with a, a person and, uh, and a dog who were having the same treatment. It's incredible. Yeah. I didn't realize in deal, no. Yeah, and I didn't until after his first surgery. Yeah. You know, what sort of an impact that he was going to have, you know, not only for him, but other dogs and humans. But two months after that meeting, Otto's symptoms worsened. It appeared his cancer returned. Dan took him for a final swim in his favorite river and then said goodbye to the dog he called his best friend and a medical pioneer. Good, Otto. 
Julie Hinseth's symptoms have now worsened as well. She stopped taking part in the trial and has entered hospice care. She told us she's grateful to have been part of an innovative interspecies battle to find new treatments. I helped fight cancer. It gives you satisfaction to know that you helped fight cancer. Yeah. I've had two dogs who have had cancer, and Mm -hmm. the idea that that cancer can be studied and treated and it can have an impact on humans is incredible. Maybe the key, right? Yeah, dogs may hold the key. Christy Gomes, who's now well into her freshman year in high school, says she agrees. We have to have more common things than we think. It's not just that they need us for food and it's not that just that there's we're a real connection. It's that we have to have like more connection than that. Christy's last scan showed no signs of cancer. She continues to get immunotherapy every three weeks. Benny, come here. Between treatments and homework, you'll find her with her Yorkie Benny, a gift from her mom. One more dog that's helping her in her recovery. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. There are more than 75,000 wild horses roaming public land in the West. Wild horses are the descendants of domesticated horses, the first brought here by Spanish explorers 500 years ago. By 1971, their numbers were dwindling, and Congress stepped in, passing a law to protect this romantic fragment of our history. It worked almost too well. Today, federal land managers say the number of wild horses is nearly three times what it should be and left unchecked, their population can double every five years. As Sharon Alfonsi first reported in November, there's a program in Wyoming designed to rein in the wild horses and an unlikely group of men. It's hard to imagine anything surviving on this stretch of badlands in northern Wyoming. Sagebrush blankets the high desert all the way to the Rocky Mountains. But in this empty quarter of the cowboy state, is a thundering herd of Mustangs. Untouched, wild, and breathtakingly beautiful. But wild horses can also wreck the rangelands they roam. Government land managers say in the West, wild horses are competing with cattle and wildlife for increasingly scarce water and food, and their overpopulation often further strains the environment. So the Federal Bureau of Land Management regularly rounds up wild horses, mainly by using small helicopters to locate, capture, and truck them off to corrals or enclosed pastures like this one. 
A horse can live for about 20 years, and most of these horses will remain here until they die. The Wind River Wild Horse Sanctuary outside Lander, Wyoming, is run by Jess Oldham and his family. Talk about the horses that are here. For most of them, this is it, right? Yes, ma'am. We have the 225 long-term residents and... Long-term residents. Long-term residents. Sounds like a nursing home. <clears throat> That's what I call them. I mean, yeah, they're yeah. part of our family, and, and uh, they're going to be here long-term. And there they go. Yes, ma'am. The 1,400-acre facility is on an Indian reservation. The Oldhams are one of dozens of contractors paid by the government to feed and care for Mustangs after they've been removed from the wild. Activists want the horses to remain free. Why not just let the wild horses be wild and run? The harsh reality is ecosystems are a delicate balance of each species coexisting together in the environment. There is a limited amount of resources in grass, in water, and the wild horses are a very dominant species. They're smart, they're fast, they eat a lot of food, um, and they need to be properly managed. Keeping count of all those horses is Holly Waddell, the division chief of the program that oversees wild horses for the Bureau of Land Management. How many wild horses is the government now caring for? So we are currently caring for over 57,000 wild horses. And caring for them is not inexpensive. No. Uh, the cost to care for wild horses in our off-range corrals and pastures was two-thirds of our budget last year, which was a little over $70 million. $70 million to care for the wild horses. Taxpayer dollars. To relieve some of the burden on taxpayers, in 2021, the Bureau says 3,742 Mustangs came off the government rolls through an incentive program that pays individuals $1,000 to adopt one. Wild horses attract relatively few takers, but these horses did, picked for their youth, balance, and temperament that are said to be trained in, of all places, prisons like the Wyoming Honor Farm. It's a 640-acre compound of tidy buildings, manicured lawns, cattle, and enough hay to feed them. It may look like a dude ranch, but this is a state-run minimum security prison with felons working the land and the horses. There are no towers or armed guards. A simple four-foot cattle fence marks the perimeter between the prison and the town of Riverton, Wyoming. You know, Wyoming has a tendency to do things a little differently because we're a smaller state, and I think uh, it, it's one of those things, until you see it, you can't actually believe it yourself. Curtis Moffitt has spent his entire career in corrections. He's the warden on the farm, and about the only one here who doesn't wear cowboy boots to work. The thing that struck me, when you drive up, you see a four-foot-high cattle fence. What's to stop an inmate from making a run for it or riding off into the sunset? Realistically, himself. Most of these guys are at the end of their sentence, so most of them don't want to destroy that or, you know, catch another number, um, do another five years or so. It, it's on them to make sure that they're going to do things the right way. Most inmates have earned the right to be here, transferred for good behavior from more restrictive state prisons. And each day, about 30 inmates report to work in a maze of chutes and pens with wild horses weighing up to 1,000 pounds. Their job is to transform these Mustangs from wild burdens of the state into riding horses that can fetch thousands at auction. These guys are here to do their time, but it's really about changing their life, put a change in them in a positive direction. <laughs> Travis Shootman is the cowboy in charge. He's the manager of the farm. 
Come on, beauty queens. Shoopman spent his life teaching the art of training horses. It shows in a stride kinked by old fractures. Have you ever had a halter on this horse, Mr. Sukor? Never. And a voice both firm and calm, as much for the inmates as the horses. Do the rope-a-dope and throw the rope into your hand. Do not get kicked. It takes time to train a wild horse, but Shoopman says there's nothing special about how it starts. You walk him in there like you just kind of rip off the Band-Aid and a human goes in there. Don't chase him. Whoa. What's the next step? Then you teach them to yield the pressure, so you stop the forward movement. Teach them that if they move forward towards you, the pressure goes away. And then from there, you get to where you can touch them, you get to where you can pet them, introduce a halter, get them halter broke, and then you have that trust. Like, they understand if they give up their right of flight to stay with you, there's some trust there. Are you talking about the horses or the The inmates? horses. Get going, hey. We are in the people business, and helping the horses is extra, but the guys really learn a lot of life lessons from the horses. They learn to try. They learn to not lie to themselves about their feelings. They learn to control whether it's the highest of high emotions or the lowest of low emotions. No one here breaks a horse. The method used at the farm is called gentling. Force is replaced by patience, persistence, and an even keel. In any pen, on any day, you can see it play out. A ballet in dusty boots. A delicate dance of inches, repeated a hundred times over. Days in the making for this, the first human touch. Next door, a Mustang in full gallop. A runaway train yields and stops on command. There you go. You got a good win. We're watching all these things step by step by step, but this doesn't happen overnight. No, sometimes it'll take four weeks. Sometimes it'll take four months to do these steps. And a wild horse takes a little bit longer sometimes. Michael Davis has been riding horses his whole life. He's serving 15 to 20 years for voluntary manslaughter. He's eligible for parole in a little over three years. If you're mad, if you're scared, that horse knows before you ever even touch him. You know, that how they know, I don't. You have to control your feelings considerably with the horse because it, it is so easy for, for them to pick up on your mood. So you're good at controlling your feelings with the horse, but with people, how are you doing? Not real great. <laughs> we're still working I have on my that. my moments. I'm still working on it, but we're getting better. Davis is an old cowboy, and one of only a few inmates here who can handle this. This horse has never had a man on its back until now. Hey! Whoa! A remarkable skill. It can't be acquired without a few scars. I've got a broken ankle, a separated shoulder, a broken collarbone, ditches in my head, broken hand, fingers, lots of fingers. What's the program taught you? What's it meant to you? A little piece of freedom. I mean, I'm wearing boots and jeans instead of hospital scrubs, and... I mean, it's hot out here, but it's a good hot. It's as close to being outside as I can get until I get outside. Out here, it's easy to forget this is a prison with 300 inmates under the watchful eye of Warden Moffat. People at home will say, like, these guys are felons. They've done terrible things, committed awful crimes, ruined families. Why should they be allowed to be out here, to be trusted, to be working with these horses? 
We don't provide the sentence to them. We don't provide the punishment for them. The judge decided all that. Um, our job is to supervise them while they're in here um, and hopefully return them to societies where they're responsible individuals, where they can be law-abiding citizens. I, I think this program goes a long way to do that, and I want to make sure they get out and, and we can believe that they're going to be successful and they aren't going to reoffend. You want to make sure, right, that the horses aren't returned and the inmates right. don't return. Right. Is that fair to say? Right. In Wyoming, the recidivism rate is below 30%. And if you're wondering about that four-foot cattle fence, well, the warden says in the last 22 years, fewer than 10 inmates have made a run for it. Come back down to a walk. Don't Staying on the right side of the fence is are. not lost Come on Peyton Sukor, an inmate serving seven to 10 years for aggravated assault. He transferred from a maximum security prison a year ago and came here with no experience working with horses. What's it like to step into a pen the first time with a wild 800-pound horse? Adrenaline, heart-pounding excitement. But I was excited to do it because once you get a horse to go the direction you want and then come and join up to you and you turn around and he's right there and it's like, wow, this animal, this connection, this feeling, I can't explain it. What has this taught you about yourself? It's taught me responsibility. It's taught me what I want to do for a career when I get out of here. And this makes you look at life a whole different way. Whoa. And Sukor's patience and feel are paying off. At auction, a gelding like this one could sell for thousands, but it's not without a little heartache. Is it hard to see them go? It is, but at the same time, we're not doing this just for us. We're doing it for them, too. It's a second chance for them as well. Have you ridden him without a tie-down? Yes, ma'am. This September, the Honor Farm held its second auction of the year. Hundreds of buyers came to the prison from all over the country to inspect these horses and query their trainers, a little like kicking the tires on a car lot. Hit 500 now, make it five, make it five, anybody put them at five. Then each Mustang takes the main stage, trotting and loping, sold to the highest bidder. Sold out, 2,500. All right, here we go. Lock In all, 15. 34 horses fetch $65,000 for the Bureau of Land Management, an achievement almost as good as the look on the inmates' faces. But remember Michael Davis, the old cowboy who couldn't be bucked? We noticed he wasn't at the auction. The warden told us he was suspended for not getting along with others. Gentling a horse and rehabilitating the man don't always happen on the same clock. By high noon, every Mustang had a new home. And for this wild bunch, gentling has its virtues. I think I know the answer to this. If you were a betting man, would you bet a psychologist is quicker to change the behavior of a man, a doctor, a therapist, or a horse? I think a horse, 100%. And that's just purely Travis Shootman talking, but the horses are a major role in what betters those men. They can teach you life lessons every step of every way. Teach you that you got something in you that you didn't think you had. They can teach you that it's okay to be afraid, but it can still be done. Nothing's impossible. There's so many life lessons. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. 
Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This evening's stories have barely scratched the surface of the mutually beneficial relationship between people and their pets. Research studies during the past decade have found pet dogs help reduce stress and blood pressure. Dog owners generally are healthier and live longer. A friendly tail wagger fights depression and isolation. Even the often aloof house cat can help young kids avoid asthma and allergies. A four-legged friend helps ease some aches and pains in the aging and helps us lead better lives. I'm Anderson Cooper. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Listen to the 48 Hours podcast for shocking murder cases and compelling real-life dramas from one of television's most watched true crime shows. Go behind the scenes of each episode with award-winning CBS News correspondents and producers in Postmortem, a weekly deep dive. Listen to 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.